Well, good morning, everyone. Please take a seat. If this is your first time here, it's lovely to see you. My name's Andy. I'm part of the ministry team here. Uh, thank you for joining us. You joined us at a good time, actually. We're beginning a new series in the book of Philippians. Um, but we thought, before we look at the letter to the church in Philippi, we thought it'd be good to visit uh, the church of Philippi. And this was far cheaper than flying you all out there. So we thought we'd uh, read through uh, Acts 16 and preach from it this morning. Uh, you'll be helped, I think, to have your Bibles open, page 1111, and uh, there's a sort of yellow handout, so it should give you an idea of, of where we're going over the next few moments. But before we make a start, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Through this dark and troubled land, you will guide me with your hand. You've promised to complete every work begun in me. Father, we claim that promise this morning. Uh, whatever our weeks have been like, however troubled, however hard, thank you that you're with us. And thank you, Father, for every promise you've given us. And we ask that you'll be with us as uh, we look through this passage. Please comfort us. Please encourage us. Please, sh- please show us the way to go, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you suffer from return-to-work anxiety. And you might know before Chloe came along, Hannah was a primary school teacher. And, and every single year, come the first day of school in September, she would experience this back-to-work anxiety. You can picture her. She's standing at the front of her classroom, 30 children before her, each holding a plastic violin. And she's asking herself, right, how do I do this again? What are we doing here? What exactly should I be doing here? I don't know, maybe, maybe you suffer the same sort of return-to-work anxiety. It takes a while, doesn't it, to, to get back into the flow, to get back into the rhythm. And I think that's also true of church life. My observation is um, when summer holidays come along, everything changes. Um, our small groups sort of temporarily shut down, our kids' clubs cease from happening, and uh, all our daily routines, they, they sort of get jumbled up. And then come September... And immediately, small groups restart, all the kids' groups are back on, and, and suddenly all these new faces here on a Sunday, we don't know who they are. I don't know, perhaps you experience a sort of return to church anxiety. We ask ourselves, right, how, how do we do this again? What, why exactly are we doing this? What, what are we doing this for? I noticed there are a number of folks who have joined us recently from overseas, and, and, and for you, perhaps everything is new. You've got a, a new job, you've got a new home, your kids have new schools, you uh, have a new church. And it's hard, isn't it? Because for you, everything's different. And maybe you're asking yourself, right, how do we do this again? What, what exactly are we doing here? Well, whether we're new to St. John's or whether we're, we're part of the furniture, my hope is by looking at Act 16, it's really going to help us. Because it's going to describe what we should expect to see happen when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached. We're going to see the effect on us as a church, and we'll see the effect on our wider community, the one we seek to serve. And this is my hope and my prayer, that walking out those doors later on, we might leave going, ah yes, I know what we're about. I know exactly what we're doing here. You'll see how I've uh, structured our material uh, this morning. You'll see from your handouts. We've, uh, we meet four characters in this passage, uh, each of whom tell us a little bit about what we should expect when the gospel is preached. First of all, we meet the Macedonian man. New frustrations, new frontiers. 
Now, forgive me. I'm going to go all geography teacher on you. I, I decided not to wear my tweed jacket this morning. I thought it would have been too on, on, the, on the ball. But um, you'll notice on your handouts a little map, and I'll, I'll have to share that with you. Because Paul, at the moment, is at the very start of his second missionary journey. He's been uh, visiting a number of churches. You see in the bottom right-hand corner of your map, he's visited Derby, or Derby. He's visited Lystra, Iconium, and now he's in Antioch in Pisidia. And he's asking himself, well, where should we go next? Where should we take the gospel of Jesus Christ next? And in verse 6 of our passage, Paul thinks the best place to go is into the province of Asia, right there in the middle of your map. It's a wealthy, educated area. It's got civilized cities like Ephesus and Thyatira. And uh, Paul says, yep, that's the place we're going to go, Asia. But in verse 6, it seems the Holy Spirit has other ideas. We aren't told why, but Paul's plans are frustrated. He's instead forced to go northwest into Phrygia. So, so next, Paul says, well, what should we do now? Well, maybe we should turn back on ourselves. Maybe we should head back into Bithynia. Now, that way, he can visit some more churches there. But again, his plans are frustrated. In verse 7, we're told the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to go there. And so they're forced to go westwards through Mysia to Troas on the coast. Now, I notice you all look at your map, scratching your head. Ge- geography might not be your thing, maybe. But here's the point. Again and again and again, Paul makes these brilliant plans. This really good strategy to reach out with the gospel. But again and again and again, his plans are frustrated. It seems he wants to go this way, but God says, no, I want you to go this way. Why? Well, we're told in verse 9. Look down with me. Follow with me. Verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we've got absolutely no idea who this man of Macedonia is, but the message is very clear, isn't it? Please help us. Please come to us. Please bring this gospel of Jesus Christ to us. And so what does Paul do? The very next day, he sets sail for Macedonia. Paul's plans are frustrated. But the purpose is to bring him on this, bring the gospel to the new frontiers. I've seen this sort of principle at work in, in lots of situations. I'll scratch my head to try and think of ways to illustrate this. I've actually seen it in my own family. And you might know um, my father at one time was a very successful surgeon. But for one uh, reason or another he was forced to retire early from his work. And at that time, it was very painful for us as a family. He, he was gutted about this, not just professionally for his career, but also, also because he, week by week, day by day, he had these wonderful opportunities to share the gospel with his patients. So he was asking the Lord, look, why is this happening? Surely this isn't the best thing for the gospel. I know some of you are going through similar periods at the moment, end of contracts, losing your job. You're asking, why is this happening? But the Lord never, ever closes doors without opening up new ones. And now we, uh, we look back 20 years on, and, and, and during that time, my father had the opportunity to start a Bible-believing church, which 20 years on is now one of the largest in North Hertfordshire. Our plans are frustrated, but God was using that in order to bring the gospel to new places. 
And maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this is the truth us as a church we need to sort of embrace at this time. Uh, we, we might think this or that is the best thing for the gospel uh, for Hampstead. But instead, the Lord leads us in a, in a different, unexpected direction. It might be a harder path. It might not have been the route we would have chosen. But know this. Nothing can hinder God's purposes and mission. It will all be for his glory. That's the Macedonian man. New frustrations, but new frontiers. Next, we meet Lydia. Open heart, open home. You can imagine Paul and his, his excitement after having received this vision of this Macedonian man. He, he would have expected, upon arriving in Philippi, for there to be this crack team of highly motivated evangelists, raring to go, ready for Paul to show them the way. And so Paul arrives in Philippi, and as was his custom, he, he walks around the city and he goes to find the synagogue. He wants to preach the gospel to the Jews in the city. But after wandering around for a few days, Paul, Paul can't find one. Someone points him outside the city, so he's, he's wandering outside the city and he, he sees the group of Jews. It's not a synagogue. Apparently they can't even find ten men to make up a synagogue. The only Jews you can meet are outside with the rest of the outsiders, the rest of the, the social outcasts, and they're all women. You can imagine Paul asking himself, well, this, this, isn't, this isn't very impressive, Lord. This isn't very strategic. Really, is, it, is this the plan? I mean, surely Ephesus, wealthy, civilized Ephesus, maybe that's where we should go. But he preaches the gospel to them anyway. Look what happens, verse 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord's clearly been um, working on Lydia for a long, long time. She's uh, got a pagan background, but at some point it seems she converted to Judaism. That's what the word worshipper of God means. And uh, she's a wealthy businesswoman. She's uh, from Thyatira. Do you remember that area, Asia, Paul wanted to go to? That's where she's from. But providentially, God has brought her all the way to Philippi so that on this day, by this river, she might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was the one speaking, but clearly the Lord was at work in her. He opened her heart. It's humbling, isn't it, to think that the only reason we chose Jesus is because he first chose us. Of course, we, we make very real decisions, but, but if we've turned to Christ, we only did so because of his work in us, preparing us. I mean, he prepared us to be in that place at that time. He prepared us to be in that family, to have that youth group leader, to have those friends. Why? Also that we might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. I think this might be a comfort for those of us who've just left a lot of things back home and, and moved to this area, moved to London. And maybe you're wondering, why am I here? What on earth am I doing here? My family's unsettled. My job is, to be honest, a disappointment. The weather's a joke, although today it's, sort of, it's turned up all right. The rest of August has been rather depressing. And one of you said to me last week, my, my, my entire flat is the same size as my living room back home. 
Well, remember, God, God is entirely sovereign. He moves us where he wills in order that we might come under the sound of the gospel and respond to it. And just notice how Lydia responds there in verse 15. Look down with me. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Notice that Lydia, she, she wants the gospel to shape her home. And when she's baptized, so is her entire household. And she clearly wants her family to know and love Jesus too. It's a priority for her. And you might want to know, for us here at St. John's, this is a priority for us too. And we encourage parents to read the Bible and pray with their children. We have resources at the back corner over there to, to help us do that. You've heard earlier from Ross, we, we have a plethora of children's clubs and groups because we think it's not only important that adults have midweek fellowship, but that our children do as well. And I encourage you to make the most of those. Allow the gospel, like Lydia, allow the gospel to shape your home, your family. But notice also, Lydia wants the gospel to shape the use of her home. I love the fact that, that she has to persuade Paul to use her considerable resources. Uh, please, Paul, use my house. Use my, uh, my contacts. Use my money. Use it for the gospel. And uh, Paul sort of, sort of reluctantly, I've just met you, but, but okay, fine. I love it. She never received a single seminar on giving. So what made her want to do this? She must have grasped the fact that through Jesus Christ, Paul isn't just some random stranger. He is now her brother. And every Christian is now a member of her family. And you might have heard it said that the, the wallet is, is the last part of us to be converted. Maybe that's true. In my experience, actually, it's our theology of church. It's our, stand, our understanding of our relationships to one another's here. Often that's the last thing to change. If you're new to St. John's, you need to know that we are a family. Uh, we're not Sunday Christians who just want nothing to do with each other midweek. No, we try and be each other's lives. We try and love one another. We try and share what we have with one another. And I hope if you're new, that, that you'll feel very soon you're a part of this family too. And that, that people invite you around for meals, that you're quickly stuck into a small group. That, that's our hope for you, because we're a family. We want to model ourselves on Lydia. Open heart, open home. Well, next, we meet a very different person. We meet a slave girl. Great deliverance, great opposition. Follow with me in your Bibles, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you a way to be saved. This girl, she really is the very opposite of Lydia, isn't she? A slave, no money. No status, utterly pagan. Literally, we're told, she's possessed by a python spirit. And I read, her job was to, if you like, validate new religious cults 
as they entered the city. Yeah, but you know, politicians these days often like celebrity endorsements, don't they? Oh, Cher thinks I'm brilliant, vote for me. Something like that, or maybe a slightly less out-of-date celebrity. Um, but, but she's like the ancient equivalent of that. Now, for days on end, this girl would, would follow Paul around the city saying, listen to these guys. They know the way to be saved. Uh, you can imagine the newspaper headlines. They'll be reading, uh, Python Girl endorses salvation message. This girl would have helped put Jesus on the map. So perhaps it was tempting for Paul to, endorse, to allow this celebrity endorsement from the Python spirit girl. But of course he doesn't. He can't. You might know sometimes Satan uses force in order to advance the gospel, in order to prevent the advance of the gospel. And we see a lot, a lot of that around the world. We were praying earlier for, for North Korea. That's what's going on there. Here, it seems he's trying to use what's called syncretism. He wants to take the message of Jesus Christ and blend it with the culture. So it's so watered down, so compromised, that in effect it's completely obsolete. And that's a big part of Satan's strategy here in London, isn't it? We must resist it. In verse 18, Paul delivers this girl from the grip of the python. He declares, verse 18, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at moments later, the spirit leaves her. We might not feel very comfortable talking about Satan. We don't really use his name much, do we? But the reality is many, many are held captive by him, even here in, in wealthy Hampstead. Sure, it might not be as visible, might not be as tangible as this poor girl, but, but surrounding us are people enslaved by sin, enslaved by evil, by fear, by shame. They're very much enslaved. Which is why the mission of our church is to go and make Jesus known to them. Because only Jesus' name has the power to save. Not Paul's name, not my name, only Jesus' name has the power to save. That's what we're about as a church. We don't actually know what happened to this, this girl. Um, she was probably ditched by her owners, meaning this poor, vulnerable girl. She would have been left to fend for herself, perhaps to sell her, sell her body in the sex trade. We, we, we don't know what happened to her. I like to think that Lydia took her in. I like to think that, that Lydia opened her home as she did with the others and looked after this poor girl. Sometimes turning to Christ can be very costly. This girl, she lost everything, funnily enough, having turned to Christ. She lost her security, she lost her position, but she gained salvation. And she certainly gained a family. But apparently not everyone sees it that way. Many are opposed to Jesus and, and his message. The slave girl's owners, we see that they were furious that their means of income is now thwarted. So what do they do? They, they drag Paul and Silas to court. And in verse 10 to 20, that they accuse them of offending Philippian cultural values. Look at verse 20 with me. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. And are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. It's 
funny at the moment in the UK, we're, we're seeing something going on. We're, we're seeing a, an accelerated separation, if you like, of our Judeo-Christian heritage from what are so-called modern British values. That, that like, like two sort of icebergs breaking and drifting apart. That it's happening more and more and more. And it's a shock, perhaps, for those of us who, who merely want to be culturally Christian. Because we're going to have to choose. What do you want to be? Where do you want to go? Who do you want to identify with? The kingdom of God has always disrupted the world's culture. It's true here in Philippi. It's true here in London. Which means, Christians, we will suffer for being different. Paul and Silas, what happens to them? Well, they're stripped naked. And they're beaten in front of the whole city. And then they're thrown into prison. Worse than that, verse 24, into the very inner cell. It's a dark, smelly hole reserved for the very lowest of society. Are you up for being labelled as the very lowest of society? Well, it, it comes hand in hand with proclaiming the gospel of salvation. That's what the slave girl teaches us. Great deliverance, but great opposition. It comes hand in hand. Well, finally, we meet the jailer. The jailer. Joyful imprisonment. Joyful conversion. don't know about you. If I was Paul, I'd be pretty angry at this point with God. God says, yeah, go to Macedonia. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be great. Uh, there's a man there waiting for you. It's all going to kick off. It's going to be a wonderful, fruitful ministry. And there is Paul, naked, whipped, bleeding, sitting in this dark, smelly hole. I'd be furious with God. I'd be asking, what's going on? Where's the, what's, what's the plan? They say, don't they, that our anxieties that amplified at night. I, I would have been sleepless. But notice in verse 25 what Paul is doing. He and Silas are singing. Singing. They're praying and singing hymns to God. And, and all the other listeners, all the other, the, the other prisoners, they've got their ears to the cells listening to Paul and Silas sing. How strange. My step-grandmother was um, a missionary in Ethiopia for much of her, her life. She's now back in the UK. But she described some of the, the awful persecution that Ethiopian Christians faced during largely the 20th century. And uh, she describes how, at uh, one time, that this whole group of uh, evangelists and missionaries, they, they were rounded up, they were chained together by the neck, and they, they were taken to the courthouse. And witnesses describe on that day how these, these evangelists, on the way to being condemned, they were singing. One witness said, they look more like conquerors than prisoners. Another agreed, yes or an army on the march. People will notice the way that we suffer. Because it kind of shows whether we actually believe our own message. Our salvation, it's, it's not found in having this easy, prosperous, middle-class life, but in suffering with the Lord Jesus Christ and being united with him in that. Paul and Silas, their singing is cut short though. You notice an, a violent earthquake suddenly kicks off. You can imagine rubble falling from the ceiling, dust everywhere, rusted hinges snapping, doors swing open wide. What an opportunity for a prison break. 
The jailer awakes in a panic, his heart beating. He's, he's fearing all of his charges are now going to escape. He's an ex-military man, most likely, and he knows what happens if you fail in public duty. It'll be shameful. He might be tortured himself. So what does he do? He pulls out his short sword and, 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 and is about to stab himself and kill himself. But Paul shouts out, stop. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. Isn't that remarkable? We're all here. Not just Paul and Silas, the Christians, but all of the prisoners who've been listening to them sing. So follow with me what happens next in verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were all baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. We've called this new series, we're starting today, Joy. And there's a reason for that. It's because the, from the very start, this was the distinctive mark of the Philippian church. Strange. Here was a fellowship born in the midst of weakness, of controversy, of persecution. And yet the defining mark of this church was Joy. I wonder what, what's our joy tied to? Perhaps the, the fact we have a secure job and live in a lovely area. Perhaps that we experience good health. Perhaps that we're respected by our colleagues. Friends, if, that, if that's what our joy is tied to, our life is going to be an emotional roller coaster. Joy is not a matter of circumstance, but perspective. The jailer's joy isn't anchored in his circumstance, but in his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave him an unshakable salvation. I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're asking yourself, like the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Maybe you've been looking for salvation in all the wrong places, in, in your job, perhaps in your home, but you found out there's no joy there, no lasting joy there. What must I do to be saved? Well, like Paul, there's only really one person I can point you to. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Maybe you're here today. If, if that's you, please come chat with me afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to uh, share more with you about what that might look like. I'd love to explain more. But... Uh, the story goes on that the next day, Paul and Silas are released. And perhaps the authorities, they, they feared that they're a bit of a dangerous couple to, to, to keep in the city, causing too many earthquakes. And so that they try and sort of get them out quickly, quietly, out the back door. Paul won't allow it, will he? He wouldn't allow it. He, he stands on his rights. He says, hang on, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. He, he forces these, these Roman officials to, to escort him publicly out of the city. The same officials who threw him in jail. The question arises, why on earth 
didn't he do that yesterday? He could have said, oh, hang on, you can't whip me, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. Hang on, you can't put me in jail, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. Why does he do it now? And I wonder if it's because he wants to protect Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, this fledgling church. He wants to show that Christians aren't criminals, but men of integrity. He's communicating to these authorities, you mustn't treat them like you treated me. Sometimes I think it's right, for the sake of the gospel, to stand on our rights. And that's what Paul does here. My time's done. Um, before I close, I'd just like to return to our final question, uh, our question we began with earlier on. That, that is, what are we about here at St. John's? What, what are we doing here as a church? What will the effect be as we preach the gospel week by week through this term from the book of Philippians? We're going to see three things, very briefly. We will see opposition. We will see opposition. We should expect it. Expect opposition. Uh, we will see salvation. We will see people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time, perhaps, or, or perhaps re- uh, renewing their faith in him. We will see salvation, and we ought to enjoy it. But we will, finally, we, we will see adoption. We're going to see people being adopted into God's family, and that's what we are. And, and I love the way this, this passage ends. There in verse 40, Paul's about to head out the city, but what does he do? He makes one last stop at Lydia's house. And what does he find? But all of the brothers meeting there. You couldn't imagine a more diverse church, a more disparate group. You've got a wealthy, middle-class woman, businesswoman. You've got an ex-slave girl. And you have an ex-military jailer. Racially, socially, psychologically, they're, they're worlds apart. And maybe you look around here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, no one's really like me. No one's got my background. I'm a bit different. And we are a very diverse church. But friends, we all believe in the same saviour. And we are a family. And that's what we hope to be at St. John's. That's what we are. We have the same Lord. And so we share the same home. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you for this glimpse of a church and we ask that we'll be like them, filled with joy, even in the midst of painful and difficult circumstances. Um, We ask, Lord, that we'll be seeing salvation being worked in and amongst us and we ask that you would bind us together and love one another and help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment's time, we're going to come